Hi, I'm Robin Black and this is Robin Thinks. And uh, this week I'm continuing on with I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. Today I'm going to be covering the end of chapter 7. And what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about the two extremes that we get caught between. So you have religious culture and you have secular culture. And they both tend to think that they're very opposite of each other. But when you take the either side to the extreme... Uh, you end up in basically the exact same territory. And it's my contention, it's my belief that they're they're equally unhealthy, okay? So right from the very beginning, the, the section is called Purity in Action, and he has three points that he makes. And the first is respect the deep significance of physical intimacy. Now that, to me, and again, this is why I'm deconstructing this book, is because I personally believe that physical intimacy is, in fact, deeply significant. So um, Josh starts off by um, uh, including sort of a transcript of this uh, radio show that he was on. He was on a show with two hosts, Crystal and Taylor. Crystal is a female and Taylor is a dude. Um, And Josh reveals that he is a virgin. And so Taylor asks, So what's going to happen when, let's say, you get married and you get to the honeymoon suite and she's lousy in bed? And Josh says, well, I won't have anything to compare it to. Crystal says, now that's a good answer. Josh goes on and says, I think part of our problem today is that we've reduced sex to some sort of sport. We need manuals and color-coded charts. Instead of being an expression of the intimacy and commitment of a husband and wife, it's all about performing. I think that's part of the reason there's so much sexual dysfunction today. People are terrified that they won't live up to Hollywood's definition of the perfect lover. Taylor says, yeah, but what if she's lousy in bed? I mean, she just does everything wrong. Josh says, that won't be why I marry her. Do you see the problem with what you're saying? What happens if you marry someone because they're great in bed, but one day they aren't? And Taylor says, cheat. Josh says, well, sadly, that's what some people do. Josh uh, finishes up. He says, Like Taylor, many non-Christians view sex as a bodily function on the level of scratching another person's back. They engage in sex whenever and with whomever they want, although that kind of lifestyle is an affront to biblical values. Many Christians teach lesser expressions of physical intimacy with the same lack of respect. They view kissing and holding or fondling another person as no big deal. We may hold higher standards than our pagan neighbors, but I'm afraid we too have lost sight of the deeper significance of sexual intimacy. That is absolutely 100% true. This is the problem. Um, You have Taylor over here, the, you know, quote unquote secular DJ, and he's saying, what happens if she's lousy in bed? Which just implies that sex is something you're either good at or bad at. Once again, there's no sense of, um, we need to communicate. We need to, to be able to, we need to know our own bodies well. We need to be able to talk about, um, you know, I like this. I don't like that. I'm comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with that. And, and part of what that requires is that requires women to actually be able to say, no, I don't like that. And here's the problem with evangelicalism. And, and this is where these, the, the threads of patriarchy come winding in and they they um, inject themselves into relationships because women who have grown, been grown have uh, been raised in patriarchal cultures know we're not allowed to say no we're not allowed to express an opinion we're not allowed to figure out what do we like and what do we not like um, 
there's a movie called The Runaway Bride. And so um, Richard Gere plays a uh, reporter. His name is Ike. And uh, Julia Roberts plays this woman named Maggie. And Maggie uh, has been engaged like numerous times. I can't remember exactly how many, but every time she uh, gets to the altar, she doesn't go through with the service. And so Ike goes to write this story about her. And so Ike um, interviews all of the former fiancés. And there's this really great thread running through uh, the story. And what I find really interesting about this movie is that the screenplay was actually written by a woman. And anyone familiar with uh, kind of the way that Hollywood works and movies work, uh, the person, when you have a screenwriter and they write a screenplay, what ends up on the screen a lot of times looks nothing like the original screenplay. But it is significant that it was a woman that wrote the screenplay. And I, and I genuinely, truly believe that this is something that she wrote that actually made it onto the screen because it's something that really only a woman would fully understand. So Ike asks all of her ex-fiancés, how does Maggie like her eggs? And every single fiance says, oh, that's easy, just like me. And so one fiance likes his eggs, say, over easy. And another fiance likes eggs Benedict. And another uh, fiance likes them scrambled with hot sauce. So however they like their eggs, that's what they say. Oh, Maggie likes them just like me. And so one of the scenes in the movie, Ike confronts Maggie and he says, how do you like your eggs? And she answers, you know, oh, I like them, you know, however her current fiance likes them. And this is, the, this is very true to how women are. We don't even notice how much we are conditioned to simply be a mirror of the men in our orbit, basically. We have no idea what we actually like apart from men. This is why I am such a proponent of women taking time to just be single, figure out what do you like? Uh, how do you like your eggs? Um, how do you like your coffee? Do you like coffee? We, we're so inundated with the voices of men. The voices of men are so loud in our lives that we don't even know what we think or how we operate best. Our whole entire world is dictated and ordered by men and it's usually ordered according to their preferences and or their standards. Um, this is a big part of the reason why I started Robin Thinks is because it's about rethinking everything that we've been taught because almost every single solitary thing that we have learned in our entire life has men's fingerprints all over it. So here's the thing, you're never going to be able to have a fulfilling sex life if you cannot, it, first of all, if you don't know what you do and don't like, and second of all, if you're not allowed, if you don't feel comfortable uh, telling a man, I don't like that, I don't want to do that, um, I'm not comfortable with that. So many women are incapable of saying these things to a boyfriend or husband and this is a huge problem and and let's talk about why a woman's satisfaction is so important and so critical to sex okay 
Um, evangelical Christianity loves to focus on homosexuality and how bad homosexuality is and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Another thing that the Bible talks about, however, is bestiality. What you probably immediately think of when you think of bestiality is probably like sex between a human and an animal, but I don't think that's what, what bestiality is actually talking about. Okay. Um, anyone who's, you know, watched the nature channel enough or grown up on a farm or, you know, just lived in a city, uh, probably has seen animals having sex, right? And, and we have a name for it. It's called rutting. This is what animals do. They're, they don't, there's no foreplay. There's no emotional attachment or engagement. Uh, they literally just um, kind of jump up there and start going to town, right? That is rutting. And that is what animals do. It is, there is no, um, there's no cuddling. There's no talking. There's no looking into each other's eyes. It is that is, in my opinion, that is what bestiality is, okay? And some of the next books that I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to go into some of like the, the Christian marriage books, right? And here's one of the big problems with all of the Christian marriage books is, you know, this is the, uh, this is the sexual guidance that you get in, in churches or Christianity, okay? First is um, no sex until marriage, no sex until marriage, no sex until marriage, okay? Then once you get married... Pretty much the only guidance is, women, you need to be available to your husbands. What does that mean? It means your needs don't matter. It means you are obligated to just lay there and let him do his business. In my opinion, that is bestiality. It is rutting like animals. It is a man simply using another body for some kind of release. It's literally what animals do, okay? How is there any difference between a man simply expecting a woman to lay there while he does his thing? That's exactly what dogs do. That is animalistic rutting. That is all that is. And so this is the problem is that on the one hand, you have secular culture over here telling you, yes, just get your rocks off. Just have a good time. Do your thing, okay? So that's what secular culture tells you. But how exactly is Christian is, is the Christian guidelines or Christian guidance, how is that any better? Ladies, just lay there and let your, let your husband do his business, that's your obligation. That's your duty as a woman. There's no guidance towards uh, communication and uh, learning each other's bodies and learning what you like and, and, and what happens outside of bed. Because once again, I talked about this in an earlier um, episode. If you spend 1% of your time having sex, 1%. That would be two hours a week every week. That would be 104 weeks or almost 104 hours a year that you would spend having sex. And that's just 1% of your time, okay? But I would argue what you do with that 99% of your time actually counts or matters far more than that 1%. But I would also say that what you do in that 99% of your time is going to have a huge impact on that 1% of the time that you're having sex. Um, you know, Josh says that we may hold higher standards than our pagan neighbors, but I'm afraid we too have lost sight of the deeper significance of sexual intimacy. And I would say that is absolutely true. 
but it's not just in dating. It's not just uh, you've lost sight of the deeper significance of sexual intimacy before marriage. You've, you've completely lost sight of it after marriage as well. I have said this so many times. I feel like this is just a really good-hearted young man that had the misfortune of growing up in extreme evangelicalism or an extreme patriarchal culture. And so, um, unfortunately, he echoes so many of these principles that are just really destructive to women. And in the end, what is destructive to women is destructive to men. It just is. Um, if women aren't having a healthy sex life, men are not having a healthy sex life either. Um, okay, so I just want to read this from the book. Um, a friend of Josh's says this to him. So we're going to talk about how the fallacy of this, but just keep in mind, this is, some, this is a girl saying this to Josh. She says, Men tend to see the physical as more of an experience, a good female friend once told me. A girl's point of view is very different, she explained. Kissing and making out means something very precious and deep to a woman, she said. It is our way of giving our trust, our love, our heart to the man we love. It leaves us very vulnerable. And this is so important. This is so true. If you'll remember last week, I talked about how um, the problem with Josh's youth pastor commodifying sexual activity. Remember, he asked the youth group, he said, um, you know, rate your sexual activity on a scale of one to 10. So first of all, he's commodifying it. And then needless to say, they all leave the youth room. And what happens? They all start gossiping about which girls they have had physical intimacy with and how far they went. Okay. So what this girl says right here is absolutely spot on. See, men think of sex or our culture thinks of sex as intercourse. Okay. That's not all that sex is, nor should that be all that sex is. So I would argue that uh, sexual encounters are every bit as vulnerable for men as they are for women. But there's a there's just this much greater expectation on men to know what they're doing and to be good and to be skilled. And once again, no one is just naturally good at anything. No one is just naturally good at sex. It takes it takes talking. It takes communication. It takes exploring. It, there's going to be some mistakes made. Um, and you have to be able to sort of feel your way around and you have to be in touch with your own sort of inner guidance that tells you, I'm not so comfortable with that. And there's none of that, uh, not from the secular culture, not from the Christian culture. There's no guidance whatsoever in how to engage in this process of learning how to have good sex. It is a learning process. Um, I want to go back to the book now. And one of the things that I want to point out is the reason that we, that we need to deconstruct in the first place is because, uh, you get like a kernel of truth. You get something that is absolutely true. But then what man does is man comes along and wraps that kernel of truth in their own opinion, but they do it in such a way they present it as if it is fact. 
Um, I'm a big fan of the TV show The Good Wife. It's it's uh, been off the air for a very long time now, but I've actually binged it a couple times. And there's one episode in which there's this federal judge, and she makes everyone preface their statements with, in my opinion, okay? What tends to get lost in American religion is that any path, the only thing that a pastor is ever able to do is to tell you his opinion. This is what I believe this means. This is what I believe God wants from us, okay? This is where spiritual abuse comes from is because you get statements like these that are stated as absolutes, okay? He says, God designed our sexuality as a physical expression of the oneness of marriage. He is stating this as if it is an incontrovertible fact that God designed sexuality as, a, as an expression of marriage, okay? As if God does not, will not, and cannot bless any expression of sexuality outside of marriage. Now that is Josh's opinion. That is obviously uh, a very firmly held opinion within the evangelical church and American religious culture in general, but it is not actually factual. And he is taking upon himself the license to speak for God. We need to be very, very, very careful when we invoke the name of God, okay? For me personally, I believe that the commandment to not take the name of the Lord in vain has nothing to do with using the name of God as a swear word, okay? I believe that the commandment against taking the name of the Lord in vain is exactly this. It has to do with backing up your opinion with the name of God. It has to do with um, you uh, claiming or intimating that whatever you say is God's will. It's not your will, it's God's will, okay? Keep in mind here, this is an 18-year-old male who has been steeped in evangelical culture. And remember, his whole premise for this book is that if you just wait to have sex until you're married, everything will be hunky. You will have this hot, explosive sex if you just wait until you're married. Because this is the preeminent belief of evangelical Christianity. And yet what's interesting to me is that they hold this belief that if you just wait until you get married, you will have phenomenal explosive sex. But then all of their marriage books continue to promote this idea that it is a woman's duty, it is her obligation to give herself sexually to her husband. So here's the thing. If you're actually having this mind-blowing explosive sex, why would you have to encourage women to submit themselves physically to their husbands? If women are enjoying sex, do you not think that women want to have sex? I would argue that the only reason that a woman might not want to have sex is because sex is not enjoyable to her. So do you see the conflict between these two philosophies or theories that the evangelical church presents? First they say, oh, just wait until you're married and then you'll have mind-blowing sex because that is God's blessing on you for waiting. 
But then they turn around and they promote this idea that women have to submit themselves sexually to their husbands. Those two beliefs, those two thoughts, those two ideas, they're completely contradictory. Um, He says, uh, Josh says, our culture has programmed us to think that singleness grants us license to fool around, to try out people emotionally and sexually. Since we're not married to anyone in particular, we can do what we want with anyone in general. Okay, now, so his premise here is that if you're not married to this person, you don't get to, uh, you know, test things out or try things out. You don't get to engage with this person. What he's completely, totally missing here is that people have authority over their own bodies. That is what is so important. That is important in any relationship. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what your body parts are. These are the things that are actually important in every single relationship, period, but particularly in sexual relationships. Another thing I want to I mention here is you always have to be careful when you're reading Uh, Christian books or Christian-based books because inevitably they will use scriptures to sort of back up their point or to prove their point, etc. Anytime you're reading a verse or scripture in one of these books, it's very important to not just sort of swallow it hook, line, and sinker, but actually go and look and see, is this really what I think the author of this verse intended? So here's an example of that. He says, he quotes Hebrews 13.4 from the message, which says, honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. Okay. So in that sense, it sounds like uh, guidance that is given to both men and women. And of course, it reinforces this idea that it's all about husband and wife. Okay. So uh, if you go back and if you look in a different version and if you um, look in the Strong's Concordance, uh, here's what another version and, and in, com- in combination with the Strong's Concordance has to say. Okay, it says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer. And by the way, this word adulterer, it's the accusative masculine plural Um, And it means a fornicator or a man who prostitutes himself. Okay, this is a specifically masculine word, which means it is directed specifically at men. It says, and all sexual, sexually immoral. And there again, that is the accusative masculine plural. And it means an adulterer, that is a man who is guilty with a married woman. Okay, so this is literally a directive that is given to men. And when you look at it through that lens, it takes on a very different connotation. And what you have to remember is women had absolutely no personal agency. God had to put all of the impetus on men because women had no agency, Women were not allowed legally to say no. So this is a, an, an, an edict or a directive that Paul is giving to men to keep their marriage beds pure, to honor the sanctity of not only their own marriages, but the marriages of their brothers and sisters. Okay, so this is why it is so important whenever you come across a verse 
in a Christian book like this, it is very important that you go and you do some research and you um, try to ascertain for yourself, is this actually what this verse really means? Um, one of the reasons that I am uh, want to deconstruct this and really um, pick this apart, kind of put it under a microscope basically, is that um, this lack of agency on the part of women is also woven deeply throughout I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I want to make it very clear that I believe the principles of relationship apply to all genders. I do not personally believe that um, same gender relationships have fall under any different rules than mixed gender relationships. Um, again, I don't think that God uh, cares about body parts. That being said, one of the reasons that I focus very strongly on male-female relationships is because of the power imbalances that are taught in evangelical relationships. They're very hard to spot. I don't think those power imbalances are as big of a concern in same-gender relationships. So this is why I'm not really going out of my way to use a lot of inclusive language language because what I'm really focused on here is the power imbalances and again I don't think those are as strong that I'm sure they exist but they're not sort of like reinforced by evangelical Christianity because for the most part evangelical Christianity hasn't even accepted them in the first place okay so I just want to make that very clear as to why I, I I'm focusing so strongly on male female relationships um, because I'm talking about the ingrained power imbalances, um, the innate lack of autonomy that it gives to women to make their own choices and their own decisions. Um, okay, so last week we talked about the Billy Graham rule. And since Josh brings it up again, uh, we're going to talk about it again and in, in a slightly different light. So I'm just going to read what Josh says about the Billy Graham rule, and then we're going to talk about it. Um, in the early days of his ministry, Billy Graham experienced deep concern over the public's distrust of evangelists. How could he preach the gospel to people who assumed he was a fake? As he considered this question, he realized that most people who distrusted evangelists did so because those evangelists lacked integrity, particularly in the area of sexuality. To combat this, he and the close circle of men who ran the Crusades avoided opportunities to be alone with women who weren't their wives. Think about this for a minute. What an inconvenience. Did these men really fear that they'd commit adultery the minute they found themselves alone with a woman? Weren't they going a little too far? We'll let history answer the question for us. In the last 50 years, what has shaken and demoralized the church as much as the immorality of Christian leaders? What believer can hold his head high when the scandalous conduct of many televangelists is mentioned? But even unbelievers honor the name of Billy Graham. Mr. Graham has earned the respect of the world by his faithfulness and his integrity. Okay, we're, gonna, we're not going to deal with what Billy Graham actually did. We're going to deal with the Billy Graham rule, which is all of these men deciding that the way that I can protect my reputation— is by not being alone with a woman. Okay, do you see the problem with that? And, and let's just talk about how that's completely and totally the antithesis of what Jesus did. What we know for a fact is that Jesus had constant interactions with women. He taught women. He engaged with women. He had uh, what could be con uh, perceived as um, 
intimate contact with women. He had a, a woman bathe his feet with her hair. This is how Jesus interacted with women. So what did Billy Graham do? Billy Graham protected him, which means what he was most concerned about is my reputation and my legacy. So that's all about him. We are called to minister to God's children, which by the way, includes both men and women. And Jesus ministered to both men and women. So if you actually wanted to consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you actually modeled Jesus's example, you would minister just as much, just as easily to women as to men. But Billy Graham wasn't concerned with being like Jesus. Billy Graham was interested in protecting his own reputation. It was about him. And this continues to be a problem in churches today where uh, women are these like sinful sexual beings that are going to lure us into temptation. Then you get the other side is, is you know, Josh is absolutely right. You the, Probably one of the biggest scandals in uh, evangelical Christianity and just Christianity in general is, is sexual abuse, right? So here's a, here's a crazy idea. Do you think maybe, just maybe, it is not very sexually satisfying for a man to have a woman just sort of lay there like a limp rag while he quote unquote does his business? Do you think that feels fulfilling for a man? Do you think that makes him feel good about himself? That basically he's just using his wife's body to rut like an animal. Do you think maybe men actually want something more than that? So this is again where I say these evangelical teachings on sex and sexuality are not just destructive to women, they're destructive to men. So he says, so he goes on to say, he says, God calls us to the same zeal for righteousness in premarital relationships. What exactly does that look like? For me and many other people I know, it has meant rejecting typical dating. I go out with groups of friends. I avoid one-on-one -on -one dating because it encourages physical intimacy and places me in an isolated setting with a girl. As we know, sexuality is very powerful. So what's happening is if you just completely cut yourself off from it, entirely. Um, this is exactly what has happened to me. I have been celibate for 20 years, for more than 20, more than 20 years, almost the entirety of my adult life. And there's certainly like some degree to which that has been voluntary, but more than anything, it is because I was damaged. First of all, I was completely cut off from my own sexuality, but even more to the point, I deeply believed that sex was dirty. I was also um, sexually assaulted by my youth pastor, um, but we didn't have intercourse. There was no penetration. And so that damaged me in the sense that it made me feel like I was not actually good enough to have sex with. Okay, I was 16 years old. He was in his 30s. That right there is already wrong. He still damaged me even though we never actually had sex. This is, a, this is a belief that I carried with me for years is that I was not good enough to have sex with. So when you combine all these, um, whether they're teachings or lack of teachings 
the, the picture that came together for me was I'm not good enough to have sex with, but sex is dirty, bad, and wrong anyway. So I just buried, 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 buried. And at one point in time, I weighed over 350 pounds. And what I know about that is that um, I was on some subconscious level, I was trying to make myself so completely unattractive that I wouldn't have to actually deal with uh, sex or sexuality. I was literally trying to make myself as absolutely unsexually attractive as possible. Um, So this is something that I, you know, am very passionate about because I have been so personally and deeply damaged by this. So, you know, Josh's answer or Josh's solution is just cut yourself off from it entirely. And I can speak from personal experience and say that is deeply and incredibly damaging. The answer is not to cut yourself off completely. The answer is to learn how to manage our sexuality and our sexual drive and our sexual desire. These are all of these things are from God and all of these things are good. it's not that we need to completely cut ourselves off from them entirely. We need to learn how to manage them appropriately. And one of the ways that you learn how to do that is you engage in them. You cannot learn how to manage something that you absolutely refuse to engage in in the first place. Okay. So um, Josh relates this story of a mother. He says, uh, I dated a lot over 20 years ago. A mother of four told me in a letter before my dates, I would read my Bible and pray earnestly that I could resist temptation. It didn't work. It never does. The path you take with your feet should never contradict the conviction of your heart. Okay. So here we have two extremes once again, and neither one of them is going to work. Uh, his answer is just don't have any contact period. Okay. And then what this mother is describing is, Um, you know, go it alone. (laughs) Like you just have to rely on your own sense of self-discipline and control. Okay. That's not going to work either. Okay. So I want to introduce you to a little term I like to call accountability. It, It gets misused so often in churches that we've completely lost sight of what it's supposed to be in the first place. Um, in churches, unfortunately, and this is a very bad model, but in churches, accountability only runs one way and it's up. So in other words, the leadership is never accountable to the people that they lead. Uh, what's interesting to me is that the American government is set up specifically to keep one person from having too much power. And this is what is completely lacking in our churches. Um, you get churches where pastors are basically like little demigods. They're basically like a law unto themselves. Okay, so this is once again where I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay. Because Josh actually has some good wisdom to impart here, okay? But he takes it to an extreme that I think becomes unhealthy when you take it to that extreme. So one of the things that he talks about is he says, um, I go out with groups of friends. I avoid one-on-one dating because it encourages physical intimacy and places me in an isolated setting with a girl, okay? It's not, there's not a problem with being alone. There's not a problem with physical intimacy. There is a problem with too far, too soon, too fast, too soon. So I've talked about before, I I personally am of the opinion that it is very, very, very important to actually get to know a person platonically before you engage in a, in a physically intimate relationship with them. 
it's a really important thing to take some time to to like group date and be around people as a group before you start to isolate yourself. You need to make sure that this is really a person that is safe to develop intimacy with. Remember, intimacy is into me, you see. And just because he's hot and just because he's cute doesn't necessarily mean that he's safe. Or just because she's hot or she's cute doesn't necessarily mean that she is safe. Okay? We need to teach them how do you manage these sexual desires and how do we manage intimacy properly you know how do we get away from these absolutes don't do this don't do that don't do this don't do that instead talk about um how how do we help young people set appropriate boundaries for themselves and then how do we help reinforce the boundaries that they set for themselves josh talks about He's going to talk about what's, what's the guy's responsibility and what's the girl's responsibility, right? So he's, he's giving responsibility to, to both sides. He starts off by saying, guys, it's time we stood up to defend the honor and righteousness of our sisters. We need to stop acting like hunters trying to catch girls and begin seeing ourselves as warriors standing guard over them, okay? Throughout this book, there's so many instances in which Josh talks about how boys, how his peers, how his friends talk about girls. And does he ever stand up for them? Does he ever say, hey, guys, uh, we need to stop talking about our sisters this way. No, he never stands up for them. And yet he says, we need to see ourselves as warriors standing guard over them. Here's the thing, a 16, 17, 18 year old girl is well on her way to being able to make her own decisions about her own body and her own sexuality. Remember uh, what I just talked about is kissing and making out mean something very precious and deep to a woman. It is our way of giving our trust, our love, our heart, to the man we love. It leaves us very vulnerable. And I would argue that is absolutely 100% spot on. And so here you have these girls and they're, they're, they're not just giving their bodies, they're giving their trust, they're giving their hearts to these young men. And then what do these young men do? They go out and they brag to their friends and they literally name names. And then you have Josh here saying, we need to stop acting like hunters trying to catch girls and begin seeing ourselves as warriors standing guard over them. It is right there in the language. This is patriarchy. We are above. We make decisions for them about what they can and cannot do. It is not up to a man to make decisions for us, but if we do choose to engage in physical intimacy with a man, then absolutely it should be his responsibility to protect our hearts, to protect our emotions, to be worthy of our trust. Okay? What Josh says is, a good friend, Matt Canlis, modeled this idea of guarding a girl's purity in his relationship with Julie Clifton the woman to whom he's now married. Long before they began pursuing marriage, both felt deeply attracted to the other. 
but during a certain season, God made it clear to Julie that she had to focus on him and not be distracted by Matt. Although Matt didn't know this at the time, he made it his priority to guard Julie's heart during this time of waiting, even though he felt personally drawn to her. Matt controlled his desire to flirt with Julie. He passed up opportunities to spend time alone with her, and when they were in group settings, he refrained from singling her out and focusing too much attention on her. He avoided doing anything that would make it harder for Julie to focus on serving God. This season didn't last forever, and eventually Matt and Julie became engaged. I had lunch with both of them a few weeks before their wedding. Julie explained how grateful she felt that Matt had enough maturity to put her needs above his own. By making her emotional and spiritual purity a priority, Matt helped Julie focus her mind and heart on God. If Matt had acted selfishly, he could have distracted Julie from what God wanted to accomplish in and through her life. Okay, a really important thing to notice here about when Matt talks about his relationship with Julie, he doesn't focus on the physical. He doesn't talk about did we or did we not have sex. He doesn't, he doesn't ever mention physical intimacy. What he talks about is protecting her spiritually and emotionally. He didn't sit here and talk to Joshua about how far they did or didn't go sexually before they got married. Okay. And so, um, again, I just want to talk about where is Matt Canlis today? So Matt Canlis, I'm guessing about the time this book was written, he was probably in seminary or, um, on his way to seminary. And one of Matt's mentors was Eugene Peterson and, and Eugene Peterson advised Matt. He said, Go somewhere he could avoid being swallowed up by the American church machine. Um, he, he said this, he had this to say, he said, um, he, when he and his wife Julie landed in a small rural parish in Scotland where he began to be weaned off of his ambitions, Matt would put all he had into a home run sermon and on the way out the door, the parishioners would ask about the weather or his family. After 13 years of living life at a much slower pace, he returned to America to help reintroduce this very different lifestyle. He made a film called Godspeed, which is essentially the idea of living life at three miles an hour. On average, people tend to walk about three miles per hour, so the idea is to live life at walking speed. Okay, I find it so interesting that if you look at Eric and Leslie Woody, and then you compare Matt Canlis, Yes, Eric and Leslie Woody did not have sex before they get married. Woo-hoo. But then they go off and they, you know, create this ministry that just has a lot, just an, an enormous number of earmarks of abuse, okay? Then you have Matt Canlis, who doesn't actually say anything about his physical relationship with the woman that eventually became his wife, but it does talk about protecting her um, spiritually and emotionally. What you do doesn't matter anywhere near as much as why you do it. Because in essence, you have two men that for all intents and purposes seem to have made the, the same choice, right? You have Eric Woody who decided for Leslie. Um, I don't know that for sure, but it seems as if Eric unilaterally made this decision for, for Leslie that they weren't going to have sex before they got married. But I don't think that's really out of concern for Leslie. 
um, I would lean more towards the assumption that that was all about Eric's pride and Eric's self-righteousness, okay? Matt, on the other hand, seems to have genuinely been trying to put Julie's needs ahead of his own. And again, it, he, he doesn't even mention their physical relationship. He talks about wanting to protect her emotionally and spiritually. And those are two completely, totally different things. Um, I'm going to include the link to this movie, Godspeed. It's only it's 30 minutes long. It is amazing. It is beautiful. It, I think it contains a picture of that is so much closer to what I believe God intended the church to be than most of what we see in America. I think Eugene Peterson was absolutely spot on when he encouraged Matt to get himself as far away as possible from the American church machine. I think that is, that is absolutely spot on. Um, I think that is like the most accurate description of churches in America. It is the American church machine. Okay, so then he goes on, and I just want to, you know, cover this real quick because we're, we're, it's, we're so familiar with this. It's so cliche. So, you know, Joshua goes on to talk about the girl's responsibility, and this is textbook evangelicalism 101. He says, girls, you have an equally important role. Please be aware of how easily your actions and glances can stir up lust in a guy's mind. You may not realize this, but we guys most commonly struggle with our eyes. I think many girls are innocently unaware of the difficulty a guy has remaining pure when looking at a girl who is dressed immodestly. Okay, again and again and again and again, the Bible constantly puts um, responsibility for our hearts and our minds on us. It says, take every thought captive to Christ. The Bible says, if you look at a woman and picture yourself having sex with her, it's as if you had sex with her. Okay. So Jesus interacted with women all the time. Jesus somehow managed to spend three years uh, traveling around and being around uh, single women, married women, women in gen- tons of women, and yet seem- somehow managed to uh, avoid uh, tripping and sticking his dick in any of them. Um, so I want to talk about the extreme hypocrisy of evangelicalism and probably religion in general here. And you know this is part of why deconstruction is so important because when you start when you start picking these things apart is when you start to see the complete and total hypocrisy. And when you see the hypocrisy, this is where cognitive dissonance comes from. So here we have Josh spouting the evangelical party line, which is women are responsible for the thoughts and actions of men. It is a woman's responsibility to make sure that a man doesn't accidentally trip and stumble and stick his dick in her, right? This is a woman's responsibility. And that we have to dress in a certain way. We have to, you know, cover up our entire bodies so that a man isn't tempted, uh, isn't overwhelmingly tempted to stick his dick in her right? Um, but then we're taught there's no sex before marriage. Okay. And, and girls are taught that your, your greatest and your highest role is to get married and have babies. Okay. So the goal is somehow we need a man to become 
attracted to us, right? Because that's how you get married. If you get married, you kind of need a man to be attracted to you. But we're not supposed to, to dress in a way that would actually draw that attention. So how exactly do we get married, meaning get a man to notice us, when it's our responsibility to make sure that we dress in such a way that no man ever notices us, okay? But wait, it gets better. Okay, so some people might remember um, Pastor Stuart Allen Clark. He is the pastor of General Baptist Church. Uh, I believe it's in Georgia. I'm not sure. And Stuart Allen Clark, I don't know if anyone saw pictures of him. Let's just say he's not exactly the picture of Hollywood masculinity. There are no rippling muscles. There is no flowing hair. He's not going to be cast as the leading man in any rom-coms anytime soon. Okay? So he is not just encouraging women to keep themselves attractive for their husbands, but he actually compares women, he, he, he actually points out Melania Trump as being the ultimate trophy wife. So he, a pastor, is actually holding up some other man's wife as being sort of this epitome of what all women should be. So once again, here we have, it's not even a double standard. It's like a triple or quadruple standard where, so unmarried women have to keep themselves covered up so as to avoid the attention of boys and men. And yet they also somehow need to get themselves married without ever attracting the attention of boys or men. And then once they get married, it's their obligation to keep themselves attractive for their husbands while also apparently avoiding being attractive to other men. And yet here you have Mr. Pastor holding up Melania Trump, another man's wife, as being the epitome of what wives should look like. And I'm assuming that his own wife was probably sitting right there. So I just want to, let's talk about some healthy guidelines and boundaries for everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of gender attraction. Here are three principles of healthy relationships that we can take from this, okay? Number one, set your own boundaries. Decide ahead of time. This is what I... I will do, this is what I won't do, this is what I'm comfortable with, this is what I'm not, this is how far I want to go, this is where I want to draw the line, okay? Decide that before you get in the situation where your hormones take over, okay? Number two, don't expect to be able to maintain those standards or those guidelines all by yourself. Put yourself voluntarily into accountability with another person and a person outside of the relationship. Don't make yourself accountable to the other person that you're being physically intimate with because they're not going to be able to, you know, maintain those boundaries. I don't know why accountability works. I just know that it does. Um, And it's sadly lacking in churches. So find a friend, find another person. It needs to be somebody that you trust. Absolutely. Um, Just have them ask you, are you living, are you staying within the standards that you set for yourself? Okay. So first of all, set your, set your standards first. 
before you ever get into the situation. Be very careful about deciding very carefully when you are ready to be alone with this other person. And take the time ahead of time to determine, is this someone that you can actually trust when you say, "Um, I'm not comfortable with that, or I want to stop now, or I need to stop now. Do you trust that they will actually stop? We need to learn something. There's a book by, I think it's Stephen Covey, and I'll also put the link um, in the show notes. There's a book called Smart Trust, and I absolutely recommend everyone read this book because too often in churches, trust is taught like an all or nothing thing. We either trust someone completely and entirely, or we don't trust them at all. We need to learn how to go through the process of trusting people. Um, So set your boundaries. Make sure you find out before you get in a situation in which you are alone with this person, if this is a person that you can trust or not trust, or how far you can trust them. Um, And then place yourself into accountability with someone that that you have uh, gone through the process of um, ensuring that they are trustworthy. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, If this has been of any help to you whatsoever, please, 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 please subscribe and please share. If you could rate this podcast, that would be phenomenal. Anything that you can do to to help um, sort of spread the message of this podcast, I, I think purity culture has been so damaging and I think it continues to be damaging because, again, we're not learning how to approach our relationships with wisdom we just get these edicts we just get these do this don't do that do this don't do that um so what i hope is to give some people tools to better approach their relationships with wisdom and i hope you'll continue to join me for that and i hope that if this is a benefit to you in any way that you will um, help me get the word out to the people that it can actually help thank you so much and i will see you next week